Thanks for downloading this episode of Historic Racing News. It's for personal use only and must not be broadcast, reproduced or used in any form without permission. Tell your friends they can get their own copy by searching for Historic Racing News wherever they get their podcasts. Welcome to the Historic Racing News Radio Show. Hello. On the November edition of the Historic Racing News Radio Show, we're talking to one of the great characters of our sport, Perry McCarthy. Perry has a wide and varied experience in, uh, in motor racing, including driving the dreadful Andrea Moda Formula One car, and latterly being the first ever Stig on TV's Top Gear programme. And talking about Formula One cars, our Corridors of Power, which is our game of opinionated nonsense we play every month, is this month about the worst single-seater racing cars of all time. My name is Paul Tarsi, and I'm joined by uh, the gruesome twosome of uh, Jim Roller and Paul Jurd, our usual I resemble that remark. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I'm afraid that Joe Bradley is not able to be with us uh, this time. He's off uh, counting clutches again? Yeah, he's counting clutches. Well, he's, I think he's installing clutches as much as anything. <laughs> he, yeah, yeah, yeah. he has some uh, some some pressing problems with, with motor cars, but he's, uh, he's off there doing that. But I'm delighted to say that we can welcome Peter Snowden to the team for this edition. Peter, welcome to the Historic Racing News radio show. I know you're a listener, but uh, this is in at the deep end for you. Well, thank you very much, Paul, and nice to meet uh, yourself, other Paul, and, and Jim virtually. And can I just say, Paul, that um, uh, Mr. Tarsi, when you invited a night, the very kindly accepted your, invita- your very kind in- invitation, the very following day, my car decided to come out in sympathy with Mr. Bradley's and decided not to work anymore. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's contagious. Yeah, but it, but is. The, it is. But the, point, the point is, Snowy... You're here and he's not. <laughs> what does that say? <laughs> we have we have backup vehicles. <laughs> Jim, I know that you're you're not the greatest Formula One fan in the world, but but oh, the, not the, true. But the, <laughs> not, not true. But, no, I am a huge fan of Formula One. Well, I just uh, think that 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 some of the personalities currently in the sport are are disingenuous at best, and you know, write prats at. <laughs> Uh, you know, other times. Any personalities left, Jim, in Formula One? Oh, good lord! Yeah, that, thank you. Yeah, I just no, and and that's what makes me saddest is because I'm a huge fan of the sport. Um, I thought that the um, uh, I thought Austin was a fantastic show. Well, that's what I was um, going to ask you about. Yeah, um, fantastic race, fantastic show. I don't know if uh, you saw it, uh, the whole program like we got here in the states from the sky feed on espn but they had willie t ribs at the beginning of the show which is a, a huge uh, uh, a, a huge a huge statement um and it was yeah it was i thought it was i thought it was outstanding i was really i was really happy for willie and i thought he did a great job he's an old friend and he's a guy that never got a fair shake in the sport much like our our guest today perry um, and he is, uh, he's a great guy. And I thought that was, that was wonderful. As far as the race itself, well, that was, 
that was uh, that was a cracker and I don't know what they put in the water in Austin, but I've never, ever seen any that many people at that racetrack for anything before. And congratulations to them. Yeah. Uh, and congratulations to them for sticking to it because when they first started racing there and everybody said, oh, you can't, you know, it'll never work. It'll never work. They just had to figure out how to coexist with Texas football and other things. And they have done that. And I think, frankly, everybody being cooped up, in the pandemic for the last 18 months, an opportunity to get out and see and hear and smell real formula one cars was too much to resist. And thus you get 140,000 people there on race day. Yeah. I thought it, I thought it was superb. And uh, we didn't get Willie T ribs much. We, we uh, did much. Do we? We did. I, I saw that. Yeah. It was fantastic. Yeah, as well. Yep. But, but we did, uh, we did have, um, Danica Patrick, who was very, very good, I thought. I thought she, she was, uh, she was a breath of fresh air after some of the stuff we get on Sky. Yeah, great race, and I just think that that might be the breakthrough that Formula One needs in the USA. Do you think so, Jim? Well, I hope so. Uh, there's always been, there's always been a core audience for Formula One in the United States, and if you use TV ratings as your guide, which for the last 40 years of my life, that's what I've had to do. There is a constant roughly 500,000 people in the United States that are your target audience for ticket sales and that sort of stuff. There's probably another 250 to 500,000 that come and go and, and that, and that's it. And if you strive to, to reach those people, I think you'll be successful. If you strive to try and compare yourself to Major League Baseball, NFL football, even the MLS soccer in the United States, um, you're going you're gonna to suffer. I think Austin, because of its proximity in Texas and the fact that Perez is in the Red Bull and very competitive, also drew the Hispanic audience right. from yeah. the surrounding states and from across the border for for the event. And I think that I think that helps and I think that needs to be nurtured and that will help make that uh race a success. Because probably you know, if there really were 140,000 people there, I would say there were probably forty thousand of those were Hispanic uh folks and you can see that with the flags in yeah, the crowd exactly and that yeah, yeah. that's exactly yep. well George, you've um you've had a, a busy month just gone um hosting some of the great and good at uh, the porsche awards dinner uh, it wasn't the awards dinner it was actually the 60th anniversary of anniversary. porsche club great Sorry. britain yes and I, I was fortunate enough to actually have to to, uh, to get to host the event at the uh, the very aptly named grand hotel in birmingham and uh, yeah, fantastic night it was. We we were fortunate enough to actually on screw, uh, on stage with have Richard Atwood, Jochen Mass, and Derek Bell, and I got to uh, interview them for around twenty minutes, which was frankly like herding cats. I could have just asked the first question <laughs> and walked off, and, and they would quite quite happily have bickered amongst themselves. And Did they uh, been, been very oh yes yes. There's, you, uh, to be honest, Jochen was keeping dropping in how he could have won more Le Mans, but things always went wrong. So I had a great delight in talking about the 1982, which was obviously the first year of Group C and the 956, where um, 
Derek won with Jackie X and Jochen was second with Vern Chupin. And after I said that, I said, Jochen, was that one you could have won? And Derek was straight in with no. <laughs> so we, we had a great evening when it was also D- Derek's birthday, his 80th birthday. So we had a nice cake for Derek and an, a couple of nice speeches. And uh, yeah, it was the first time I've actually shared birthday cake with a Le Mans winner. That's a heavy, heavy claim to make. Um, Snowy, you've, uh, you and I both, I think, enjoyed the Goodwood members meeting, which was last month. And um, that, again, like most things we get to, it was the first one for a couple of years. Did it live up to expectations? Yeah, I think, I think your memory is slipping. It was only last weekend, never mind last month. Um, it was that <laughs> um, Yes, it did. I mean, the Saturday didn't help with it uh, being wet from a spectator or point of view, but of course that made the uh, the track action even more entertaining. Watching Edwardian cars on the skinniest possible tyres going around in the wet was just hilarious, and I think most of the drivers felt the same way, actually. It was incredible, wasn't it? I love those Edwardian cars. I mean, not one of them is less than 100 years old, and... That that's, they, that's a little like were... this podcast, isn't it? Well, the, the, <laughs> your obvious love, Paul, comes from the fact that they're the cars of your childhood and your youth, of course. That's, absolutely, absolutely. It's uh, <laughs> I can remember being up there in the pram. Um, no, I, I think that, that part part of it was was that those cars are say all a hundred years old, and that if you look at the, the the timing on those, those cars were crossing the start finish line between 80 and 90 miles an hour. And these are just people sitting on floorboards on top of an aero engine. Um, it's it's nothing more than that. I, I thought it was brilliant. Um, are there high spots for you, Snowy? Um, those, obviously, the, the, the beta Turin, et cetera, et cetera, watching um, Tom Christensen start the race in the, uh, the GT40 and immediately come around to the formation lap and go into the pits. And he was, I was actually on top of the pits and watched him undoing his crash helmet, thinking that's terminal, he's out. And obviously, uh, Lanzante and Dean uh, there knew something different and managed to keep him in the car. So he joined the pit lane uh, from the back and still managed to finish second with Sam Hancock. Sam Hancock in that car holding off uh, no less than Mr. Frank Kitty was an absolute delight to watch at the end. Um, Frank Kitty, yeah. the elder, that is. So, yes. Dar- yes. Dario. Dario. Indeed, yes. You know, three. Oh, wow. Two. Three time indie winner, four time yeah, yeah. champion. You know, just you know, little little bit of a um, little bit of form. And that was, that was <laughs> nobody quite, famous then. Yeah, nobody <laughs> famous. And I think possibly if, if we're going to do sort of like three nominations, I think something that probably stunned me the most was I didn't expect to be quite so moved by it. Was watching Bruno Senna in his uncle's McLaren from nineteen ninety one. It was always mm. going to be something special, of course. Uh, but somebody obviously never told him the phrase demonstration laps. Or <laughs> it was lost in translation. Mercifully, thankfully, and praise be the Lord that it was. Uh, because once he got it warmed up, um, I was standing on the top of the pits and everybody was at the front trying to watch it go by. We didn't need to. There was a big screen. What was even better was standing at the back of the pits and just listening to that V12 howl all the way round. I never thought I'd hear that at Goodwood. So um, I never thought a Formula Modern, well, I say modern, it's 30 years old now, isn't it? Formula One car around Goodwood would capture my imagination quite so much. But well done, young Mr. Senna. And he's a splendid bloke as well. So what, Yeah, and there yeah. was a nice, nice little cameo as well a little bit later in the day. Um, uh, there was a chap animatedly deep in conversation with him, and it was Martin Donnelly. 
Oh, great. And he, I just walked past and just saw it. You didn't need to know any more than that, but you just knew what they were talking about. Yeah, yeah. Well, I was t- talking of, of that era and, and, and before, Perry McCarthy is one of those people who never quite made it to Formula One. He never made it to the top of the sport, but he's got an incredible history. He grew up in a very competitive time and uh, that mm. they still meet now the rat pack as they call themselves still get together for long lunches perry tells me that sometimes those lunches go on for 12 hours and more <laughs> and when i tell you that the members of the rat pack are along with perry mark blundell johnny herbert damon hill martin brundle the aforementioned martin donnelly steve soper Derek warwick Jason Plato and Julian Bailey. I think you'll probably understand what those lunches are like. It's quite yeah. a roll call, isn't it? It's it's incredible, and that uh, and and who's the designated driver? <laughs> That's what I want to know. It's it's none of them, Jim. I'll tell you that. Uh, many many years ago, back in two thousand and three, Perry produced his autobiography. Typically, he called it flat out flat broke which told the story of his life in motorsport and also how he got there and and much of his life just generally and how he started working on on the oil rigs to fund his formula ford career uh how he then went through various different things right the way through to working with clarkson may and hammond on tv as well and there's there's some good stories in there in between, there was that brief Formula One bit. There were sports cars. There were five participations at Le Mans. And more recently, a very successful career as a public speaker, which is why there's no surprise that he's now narrated an audio book based on Flat Out, Flat Broke. I caught up with him for a chat. Perry, you, you started your your racing career in what was very much the traditional way uh, back then, and that is in the world of Formula Ford, didn't you? I did indeed. Uh, you know, traditionally, you might you might go even before that. Uh, there, there are a lot of guys that come through karting, but no, you're absolutely right. I, I came straight off the street into uh, Formula Ford 1600, and uh, that was an eye-opener. <laughs> I'll bet, yeah. But you were... Weren't you identified by motor racing stables as being a, a hot shoe from the early days? Yeah, it was all, you know, it was, it was kind of bizarre how it all kicked off. I was at college and I was studying law, economics and art, and I kept drawing these racing cars. A friend of mine kept bringing in this brilliant magazine called Grand Prix International. So I kept drawing these cars, then read about these guys that were driving them and thought, wow, this all looks fantastic. I'd already tuned into a love of speed, unfortunately, on the road. Um, so I'd, yeah, I'd already got to know a lot of Essex police by that point. Um, so that was good. Um, but yeah, it's word got around about my, um, driving, um, and, uh, the chief instructor of Brands Hatch, a guy called Les Ager came out to get me, um, at a friend's music shop because I was playing keyboards, just a little bit demonstrating keyboards in the shop. And he said, what do you want to do? And like Jack the lad, I said, oh, I want to be a Formula One driver. And he said, yep, thought so, come with me. And that was it. He took me to the track. I took him around. Then he took me around and I took him back around. And, and that was it. He 
he said, you've got to be a racing driver. And I said, I know. And that, that it's been downhill ever since, Paul. <laughs> but that, I mean, that's everybody's dream, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it's proved a tough one um, because after a, a little recce, I suddenly realised that this motor racing game needed a couple of bob. So I got a job working on North Zurich's to get the money. Now, that took two years to get the money to, to come back in and, and try and do something with it. Um, but that put me on the grid uh, for the last two races at the end of 81, uh, first of which I set pole the second I crashed in. And then in 1982, had another stab at it using my oil rig money. Uh, six races, this time was three poles. And uh, I don't think I crashed in all the races, but maybe most of them. Um, they used to call me. They used to call me Perry McCartwheel. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it was a. I mean, it was a fairly, fairly tough world in Formula Ford in those days, wasn't it? It, it was. It, it really was. I, I kind of. It looked as if I had all the speed that you could need, but uh, nothing else. No brain. Um, <laughs> not, <laughs> not, not very little chance of staying on the black stuff. Got it all sorted out uh, for 1983. Uh, I competed in two British Formula Four championships, and I was actually leading them both. Uh, but because of money, I was going back forward, forward on the rigs again to try and help out. But I won the Dunlop Star Tomorrow Championship. And uh, I think I came, I'm not sure, I think I came second in the BP, or second or third in BP Superfine. But I won six of those races and 10 of the Dunlop races. So uh, it was, um, I'm lying actually. What am I talking about? No, I won six, I won 10 races out of the 18 in Formula Ford. That well, that's, that's not bad, is it? That's, yeah, uh, sorry. that's something to be pleased about. But I mean, you're, your book is called Flat Out, Flat Broke. And you were saying that you, when you ran out of money, you went back on the oil rigs, you did all those things. You must have been s- surrounded by poor little rich kids. Well, I, you know, I mean, I was lucky because the old man was doing quite well in business and I borrowed 10 grand out of him as well, you know. So that was um, – I did – once I got to Formula 3 later in the later years, I managed to pay it all back. But there was a, there was a bit of a bet on that as well is that if I didn't win the championship, he wanted me to go and work for his company. And I really didn't want to do that, you know? So that was an, that was an added incentive to winning the championship. <laughs> yeah, okay, that sounds, uh, sounds like a good incentive for sure. But Formula Ford, I mean, who were you competing against in those days? Well, when we, you know, the, the following year, sadly, I had a, a really big accident and that put me out for, it was only the second race in, that put me out for a year. But then again, in Formula Ford, it was me, Damon, uh, Johnny Herbert, Mark Blundell, Bertrand Gasho, um, Philippe Favre. Um, yeah. Some it's, good names there, then. That's yeah, some great names. I think Frankie Beater actually stepped into one or two. Did I say Gasho, Bertrand Gasho? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah so there was, there was a whole crowd that actually from that point made it through to F1. And presumably that was the that was the very early days of the Rat Pack, was it? It was indeed, yeah. Yeah, that's um, – it, it's so unusual, isn't it? Because – you know, you're lucky if you see one form of motor racing per year where one driver actually gets through to um, to F1. And 
there was a whole bunch of us from Formula Ford and then we all progressed together to Formula 3 and we all somehow scrabbled around to get to Formula 3000. And yeah, so we all knew each other very well indeed and, and all managed to get to F1. Clearly, my career in F1 wasn't exactly the best that you could have had, sadly, um, but we got there. <laughs> and just, just remind me who's, who's part of the, of the Rat Pack. Uh, myself, Damon Hill, Johnny Herbert, Martin Donnelly, uh, Mark Blundell, and Julian Bailey. So that's the initial Rat Pack, but we've, we've, we've tagged on a few kind of honorary members at our lunchtime since then, which is Marty Brundle and Derek Warwick, uh, Steve Soper, Jason Plato comes occasionally, my dear friend, Johnny Butte, who, you know, miss him so much, passed yeah. away earlier this year. Yeah. Yeah. But um, they, they oh, must sorry, be Jonathan, lunches, aren't they? I, I, sh- I should put in Jonathan Palmer as well. Um, right. And in fact, because of all the situation with restaurants, we had our last little gathering actually at Jonathan's place. He was a great host, Jonathan, really is. I'm sure, I'm sure. But that, that sounds like uh, all of those lunches should be a lot of fun. Oh, we ensure they are, Paul. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah I, I imagine they don't finish at 2.30. <laughs> no, they do, but in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> so you went, you went through those uh, those early days of Formula Ford, and through Formula Three, and yeah. then you moved into Formula Three Thousand, which was a it was a strange formula, anyway, wasn't it? Because it was designed really to to soak up the the DFV um, engines that were now of no use in Formula One and, and those sorts of things. But if Formula Ford had been brutal, I think Formula 3000 was even worse, wasn't it? Yeah, I think so as well. And we were managing to go and, you know, those, those cars were quick. Uh, I, lo- I absolutely love Formula 3000. It's a shame they called it Formula 3000 because Damon once said they, they call Formula 3000 Formula 3000 to – um, confuse those people who don't know about motor racing and to make those of us who do look like idiots trying to explain them. <laughs> I thought it was quite apt, actually. Typical game on dry wit on that one. But, um, <laughs> but yeah, F3000 was getting fairly, you know, it was getting dangerous. Uh, you know, a lot of us could see the opportunity. We knew that F1 were looking at a whole bunch of us, you know, mm. and, and the driving was getting, shall we say, rampy. You know, it's a lot of people were getting hurt, obviously, including Johnny Herbert, who had that terrible, terrible crash of Franz Hatch um, that, that was nearly destroyed his career. But, you know, Johnny himself may have been able to go on to win the world championship if that hadn't have happened. You know, it's, uh, it was just terrible. But it was what it was. One of the biggest things where most people could never get to Formula 3000 was the budgets that were required, even in the late 80s was about £700,000 a year to run a car. Wow. So it was incredible. Um, and it wasn't the way I did it. Um, you know, Route had produced a, a really bad car. And there, I mean, from a total of over 30, 35 Route entries, that they failed to make the grid nearly 50% of the time, you know? Wow. So yeah. by the time I got there, it was just getting worse. But it did allow me to show that I could drag something around. And I got on well with Ron Toronek, actually. But even that drive, you know, I'd done with the wages. I was earning really good wages, Paul, in Formula 3. Uh, personal sponsorship, major sponsorships. 
and I'd invested in some property and done the property up. So we had really meaningful equity, which we signed over to Ron for the uh, route from the 3000 drive. <laughs> uh, that's brave. That's yeah. Brave. Yeah. Wife liked that one as well. Yeah. I'm sure that went down very well at home. Actually, all joking one. So she was, she was totally behind the whole thing. You know, she, she knew that this is, you know, by the time we got to F3000, there'd been the, you know, incredible financial meltdown at the end of 87. And so sponsorship was uh, rarer than Lord Lucan, you know? <laughs> yeah, I suppose you were right in the middle of that, weren't you? When nobody dared move um, and certainly weren't going to spend any money on, on motorsport. Well, there, there weren't too many. I mean, clearly some people had family money and, and there were some of the bigger oil and tobacco companies plowing money in. But, um, yeah, it was sponsorship has always been terribly difficult to find. People complain about it nowadays, but it's always been always been tough. But it's, you know, the old adage, I'm sure you and many of your listeners are familiar with. But what is it is you, you go as fast as your checkbook to a large degree. Yeah, yeah. You've got to have it. But at 3000, I can't complain. You know, I wasn't able to win, um, but it did. It kind of helped the reputation of, um, you know, staying on it. And running with, I mean, when Roger Cowman was running me, it was out of his back garden. And this is, and then we're against the Works Camel and Works Marlborough teams, you know? Yeah, yeah, well, that um, must be difficult. Yeah, so, I mean, we put up a good fight. We really did. But, um, you know, that's all you can do. You, I always believe sometimes in motor racing is that if you can't stand on the top step of the podium, you can actually still win in the hearts and minds of people. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I get that. I understand that. But when you're running with Roger Cowman, for example, that are you conscious of not having that big shunt because you you can't afford to rebuild it, or does it no. not affect you? No, it didn't affect me. No, if uh, because that that's a guarantee. That's a guaranteed way to be slow. You know, it's we got. I just had to. You know, it's. This is going to sound big-headed, and maybe it is. I, I had enormous confidence, Paul. You know, I just I felt I could do almost anything. So I kind of didn't really feel I was going to be going into the wall. Right. Okay. I suppose but once you've got to that kind of level, you can't go out there and do it if you haven't got the confidence. Well, you can't. And I mean, you're against, you know, Jean Lacy and Eric Comas, Eric Bernard, you know, Marky Blundell. Um, sorry, I missed Mark from the Rat Pack earlier, didn't I? I can't believe I did that. Um, oh, dear. He'll be yeah. after you. Well, he was best man at my wedding. And I was best man at his wedding. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, so, fair enough. <laughs> yeah. Did I not say Mark? In that? Jesus, head's going. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, you know, Mark was out there and, yeah, it was. Um, yeah, there was a lot of people knocking on the door of F1. But uh, what a great proving ground Formula 3000 was. How similar was it to F1? Uh, well, my experience of F1, Formula 3000 was better. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay. Well, uh, yeah. It, the, it was, you know, by the time you got there, it's, I mean, Roger's, Roger's team, there was obviously only you know, me as a driver, Roger's team manager, and I think we had, you know, two other helpers, if you like. So we were a tiny, tiny, tiny little outfit. But some of the bigger squads like Dams, uh, QA, etc., you know, they were beginning to look pretty smart, you know, the big transporters and the team uniforms, and they, they looked good and they were they were doing well. This is when we'd recently only had telemetry come in 
um, with the with the on screen um, stuff that we was able to download and then overlay. With me, there was only me, so it was only my own traces I could overlay against. Yeah. And that's if that's of course if Roger and I understood it, which we didn't. So we left it alone and just went faster. <laughs> which probably was every bit as effective, I, I guess. Yeah, it was. I mean, if look, if we'd had all that, clearly we would have used it. Uh, properly, but uh, but we we generally just didn't have time to mess around like that. No, no. I'm, looking back on it, you can analyze it to death, can't you? But uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Going back to Johnny's big accident at Brands Hatch with yeah. Gregor Foytek as mm-hmm. uh, as shall we say a protagonist within the accident? Um, yeah, let's say a bloody idiot. Yeah. Okay. I've, I'm glad you said it. Yeah. <laughs> He put Johnny. He put Johnny into the wall. It just yeah. at 170 miles an hour. It's just it. Just an idiot. Yeah, and and quite clearly, it wasn't the only time he was involved in those sorts of accidents. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. But when when that sort of thing happens to a good mate, mm. um, and you say in your book that when you first heard there was a question about whether Johnny was actually going to pull through and that it was only when you got to the hospital that you realised that although his his injuries were very, very serious, that mm. they weren't, as we now say, life-threatening. Um, yeah. But, I mean, were you, for a start, really annoyed with Gregor Foytek? Were you worried for Johnny? Were you worried for yourself? How, how does something like that affect you? Well, on, on that day, I was actually up at Alton Park and the um, some of the circuit officials saw me and they'd just had word through and they came over and said, look, Perry, you got some bad news. John has been terribly injured at Brands. So basically, I zipped my bag up, jumped in the car and by then I'd found out he was he'd been transferred to Alpington Hospital. And let's just say I got there quite quickly, you know. Sure, um, yeah. Yeah. So... Um, I pulled up and ran in. I could see um, Becky, which was to become Johnny's wife, and um, 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 Bob and Jane, uh, Johnny's parents. Mm. And, you know, clearly they were worried, but you know the difference, you know? Uh, Nobody's sitting with their head in their hands. So, you know, he was alive. So then we found out what happened. Um, But, I mean, already in hospital there was Michelle Trolley um, from a terrible accident uh, the day before. I think it was in qualifying, you know? So I put my head around the corner to see Michelle, but he was still unconscious. Um, and then with Johnny, yeah, it was the first of many trips, to be quite frank. Paul, I went to see Johnny an awful lot because Johnny and I literally lived a mile away from each other. So we'd see each other nearly every day anyway. With, with me, um, no, Johnny would understand me saying this. It, it didn't affect me in the slightest as far as my own attitude was concerned. And you know, the, the need to get a seat, et cetera. And I guarantee you, Johnny would be exactly the same. That's as soon as it, as soon as these things completely affect you, it's time to zip up and go home. That's the yeah. thing. Uh, I, I imagine that, that also there is that whole thing. It's not going to happen to me. You got, you can't, you can't dwell on it. I mean, outside a race car, um, yeah, I do have some kind of safety procedures in my head. I'm thinking, okay, you're looking around the car and you look at the team to make sure they're behaving correctly. And, you know, all of these stuff, and you might take a look at the circuit and think, okay, you don't really want to head on there or whatever, you know? Yeah. So, but the thing is, once you, you know, this is my attitude and I'm, I'm pretty convinced it's the same with 
you know, other drivers um, that once you sit in and, and strap down and put, push the visor down, um, it's all about going forward, really. And really, it was the Formula 3000 stuff which eventually led to you joining as a, um, a test driver for footwork, wasn't it? Yeah, I, I, it actually also really, I think it was also the stuff, I'd, I'd missed out on some Formula 3000 opportunities. There was the footwork drive in Formula 3000. And the team that ran it over here with John Wickham's team manager wanted me as the driver. So that was that. Um, but then we did a runoff test between myself, Damon, Ukio Katayama, uh, Gary Brabham, and um, I think it's Andrew Gilbert Scott, actually. Andrew was a really good driver. Uh, I actually ended up being a little bit quicker than everybody. But, um, and clearly I'm saying the story because if I hadn't been, I would never tell the story, you know? Um, well, yeah, yeah. You'd, you'd make up a different one. Well, totally. You know, it's never let the facts spoil a good story. But, but the thing was, John, I know John was keen to have me in the team, but he was, you know, equally delighted when the Japanese owners chose Damon. So, and Damon and I had a chat on it on the phone. You know, we're, we're all out there to get the best drives we can. We may be close friends, but it's it's a question of, I was genuinely pleased for Damon that he'd got it. And he was genuinely upset for me that I hadn't, you know? So it's, that was a nice moment. Yeah, must be. And well, nicer for him than me. <laughs> nicer for him than for you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and, and as you say, Damon would undoubtedly have have turned around and, and um, said exactly the same story if the boot had been on the other foot, which is absolutely, which is yeah. fair comment, isn't it? Yeah. But, but you, you went through all that. You, you're, you're beginning to look very much like a, an F1 driver in waiting. Now, before we go to the next bit, I have to say that, as you know, we run this, um, this competition within the historic racing news radio show which is called Corridors of Power, where each of the, <laughs> the team members choose the worst or the best or whatever of, of anything. And that at the end of this show, the team will be choosing the worst racing cars of all time. Now, I have I, – I rarely actually put any proviso on any of that, but I've told all of them that they can't have the Andrea Moda Formula One car because – that's already spoken for because <laughs> you're going to tell us just about about that. For a start, I mean, 1992, it's the big time that you are a Formula One driver, and there's a there's a fanfare and a drum roll, and you must have been on top of the world at that point. Oh, I was, Paul. I mean, I was just so made up. I'd I'd come out of 90 and 91. I spent time in America, and that had gone. Again, a tiny little team against the big works teams of the Jaguars, works Nissan, works Toyotas, works Porsche teams out there. And there was just us, little Spice USA. Um, and we managed to do, you know, a good amount of Jack and the Giant Killer out there, you know, pole positions, leading races. And, and that was, I felt absolutely on the top of my form after what I felt was quite a lot of success in Formula 3000. And then to go there and really, you know, kind of be really blowing the trumpet. But I wasn't alone in blowing the trumpet because the UK press or, or the motor racing press, they were really backing me up. You know, without those boys, I'm not clear I would have got to F1. Uh, David Tremaine and Joe Sayward and, 
you know, Simon Aaron and Tony Dodgins and, you know, Mark Gallagher, lots of people just kept going, Perry this, Perry that. And so when I got back, uh, I'd had some testing with the footwork team, um, but they needed money if I wanted to join them. And then, of course, there was this new outfit called Andre Moda, who'd looked a bit dodgy. But the fact is, they turned around and said, OK, Perry, we want you to join Roberto. And I went, funny enough, I'm free. <laughs> in more, sadly, in, in more ways than one. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, so you, you were going in as as a, a second driver in the team. Um, I don't think anybody knew very much about the team at that stage, did they? Here's a, I think you probably know, but here's a quick summary. Uh, a young fellow uh, named Andrea Sassetti um, decided he wanted to be an F1. So to cut a long story short, he did some kind of deal with Coloni to buy the assets. Yeah. Now, the deal that uh, Enzo Coloni did, it, it's, Dick Turpin would be proud of that deal. <laughs> because, because it ended up that it actually didn't even, didn't even include the entry fee or the entry license. So Andrea was learning on his seat, had to reapproach uh, FISA, FIA now, but it was FISA back then. Yeah. So then he got nailed for 100,000 bucks immediately, then found out the car was a piece of junk, then went to Nick Worth over at Simtech, who had a car on the drawing board, but Nick had drawn it like two years before. So I think it was a stillborn project, obviously, but it had been for BMW. So he purchased that. Then there was a ragtag army of mechanics from all different teams in the workshops building the things. Uh, while this was all going on, Enrico Patagia and um, and Alex Caffey, pardon me, uh, the two original Andrea Motors, were getting a bit fed up with having actually not sat in the car and missing two Grand Prix. So they criticised Andrea Motor Formula and they were fired (laughs) (laughs) before they even got in the car after the first two Grand Prix. So Andrea obviously thought, well, these two are rubbish. We, we We need fresh blood. Um, so they got Roberto in and then they had a seat left and my name kept coming up to uh, Andrea's representatives and that was it. It was offered to me and I thought, going all the way back to where you kicked this off, Paul, I'm in. Finally, I'm in. Not the biggest team in the world, but I'd had years of being with little squads and doing something with it. And I thought, okay, this is my moment. Silly me. Did uh, did Sassetti have... Any sort of background in motorsport, or was this something which had popped into his head? No, no. Uh, the, the, as far as I was aware, there was zero background. I mean, he he did employ some people who had some uh, background in motor racing, but the thing was that Andrea was kind of he was making trouble for himself, Paul. That was the problem. I mean, you know, if that car had been run correctly. We might have qualified it for a few Grand Prix, actually, because it, it was really pretty, you know. But um, it was you like, don't qualify on it being pretty, though. I know, I know, but great for the photographs. <laughs> <laughs> but um, but he was making mistakes left, right, and centre, and and kind of wasn't heeding help and advice coming from inside Formula One. Then he wasn't paying bills, so the engines didn't turn up. Then at the French Grand Prix, the team itself didn't even turn up, and it was sh- it was shambolic, and there was no there was no management. I mean, hats off to Andrea for having a dream, wanting an F one team, and even even a no money budget in F one back then 
you still had to have a lot of money for it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The but, the old um, Rob Walker thing of to uh, to make a small fortune in motorsport, you have to sl- start with a big tough and large one. Yeah, yeah, I know. Um, so that was you know it was it was the effort there, but but suddenly what they did immediately, knowing that they had no money, was they decided to put any resources only into the one car, uh, which was Roberto. Now, clearly, that kind of, it makes sense. Um, Not to me, of course, it didn't. But, you know, economically, it makes sense. But they're not even trying to run two cars. And this was getting noticed by Formula One. And, of course, you know, from my side, having come in, you know, all wide-eyed and enthusiastic and thinking this is my chance and I'm going to be an F1 driver – you know, to be, you know, it was I was looking like Mickey Mouse week after week, you know, failing <laughs> to qualify by like 10 seconds, you know, but this is on the one lap opportunity I was getting. So it was kind of, you know, inside it was hurting, to be quite frank. Um, but I'm not really the type that lets everybody see that at the time. Um, yeah, I've talked about it since. But, yeah, seeing your career go down a drain where only the year before you're on pole position here, pole position there, leading this, leading that. And then now, now looking like a sad piece of what's it, you know? Yeah, yeah. And that that must be very difficult, not only out out of the car, but in the car as well, because we've, we've talked about, you know, you, you've got to have that self-belief. But nonetheless, that much that must chip away at it a bit. Yeah, it, I mean, it did, honestly, um, because I would have needed a whole bunch of laps in that thing to have even started driving well again, because it was so sporadic. And, you know, it's you, you're losing your chance to stay fresh, even though I was training all the time. Um, you, know, it's, you, you, you hone your skills in this game, um, and there has to be a level of consistency. So it was just a question of getting in this thing when it did run, getting strapped in and praying it wasn't going to break. Um, but it normally did after one or two laps or I wasn't let out until the very end of the session, which only allowed me to do that anyway. As I said, sadly, this was, you know, I was in Formula One, but crikey, this wasn't Formula One. This was this was a, this was a joke um, and a dangerous one as well, to be quite frank. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it must have been. I've read in your book of the... Uh... Of, of the dramas at Spa going it's down fine. through, through yeah. Rouge. And, um, you know, that, that, must have, that must have made you concentrate. Well, I mean, word spread about that stunt pretty quickly. And it was that and a couple other things where, where the team got banned because I, I knew I wasn't going to have long to qualify before the thing broke. But I wasn't expecting even this. So I, I came toward um, Eau Rouge and on first lap, I thought, okay, but we are, we're, we're not going to have the time. So I might as well get this out of the way now and take it flat and pray the thing sticks, you know. But as I turned in for Rouge, I suddenly felt the steering tighten. Now, I said this recently to people. If that had been any other car, I probably wouldn't have flinched and would have gone, I'll just get on with it, you know. Yeah. Well, but there was something slightly odd about this uh, how it tightened. So I hit the brakes immediately. But by the time I had done, I'm absolutely into the corner and I can't turn the steering wheel. Um, so not at all. So it's heading straight toward the wall. Now, everything I'm saying here happened within an incredibly short space of time, as you'd imagine. But what I had done is taken enough 
uh, speed out of there that I had managed to just turn the steering wheel slightly. And that put me off the track and along and upside along the wall and then over the top and onto the, onto the straight again. So if that had happened, if I was unable to turn that car exactly when I did, um, then, you know, well, to be quite honest, the car was black anyway. So all we needed was brass handles and it would have saved time. <laughs> um, but, but once I'd come out over the top of our ridge, then I, I thought, hang on a second. I'm now going a lot slower after. And I'm not kidding you. That scared the daylights out of me. You know, my heart was through my from my mouth you know but as a racing driver you do control those things so very quickly I'm, I'm over that bit and suddenly I can turn the car again and I thought I wonder so I went a little bit faster then suddenly it was tough to turn the car and I knew exactly what was happening is that even an Andrea motor develops some front downforce so at speed of course front downforce is pushing the car down and suddenly I can't turn the steering what's happening well it's the uh, steering racks flexing. It's not allowing the steering arms to come in. So the downforce is flexing the steering rack and coming off downforce, which means going slow. Sure, you can. Be- so I came into the pits and I said, um, guys, I'm pretty sure the steering rack's flexing. I said, we know. I said, oh, <laughs> what, do you, what do you mean, you know? And they said, it was uh, the flexing on Roberto's car uh, last week when we test. So I said, yeah. So you you took that off Roberto's car and put it on mine? Yeah. Well, you know what I mean? When you do, <laughs> you know, I'm kind of, I'm fairly brave uh, and I'm pretty damn determined, but that that was enough, wasn't it, really? You know? Yeah, that must, that really must have, uh, forget the, the dangers of, of motor racing. That's just cavalier at best, isn't it? But it's stupid. It's just absolutely gormless to yeah. fit a component uh, onto one of your team cars uh, anywhere, let alone Spa. You know, it's just, uh, it, yeah, but it beggars belief. But as you've said, it's all in the book. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you know, it's it's obviously something which which is has always been a great read for for many years, but uh, but now is a great listen as well because you've. You put all this together on an audio book, haven't you? Yeah, I, I, it, it's been so lovely to hear how the book's been taken. And, um, yeah, it's sold an awful lot of copies worldwide. And people contact me about it. And it's, that's really nice. It, it feels as if it's the only good thing I did in motor racing. <laughs> but, <laughs> but there was um, – but what was really nice is – People have said that they can, you know, just hear me talking. And I thought, okay, well, let's do it. And I talked to Damon recently. He said, you've got to do an audio book. So I thought, okay, let's do it. Let's bring out this as an audio book. And uh, hopefully it adds a different dimension to telling the stories because it was funny, you know, doing this in the studio. Um, There were moments when I'm reading certain parts of it and, you know, you get getting the old lump in your throat going again, a tear in the eye actually reading it out. And there were other times because of the stunts and all the laughs where I'm actually crying with laughter or, or trying to suppress a giggle, uh, which is still coming across. So, you know, the, the big ups and downs. But it was, a, it was a great exercise, and hopefully people enjoy it, especially, of course, Paul, with Christmas coming up. You know it's a must-have present for the loved one in the family. 
it will be on our uh, on our must have list for Christmas. Rest assured on that. I just want to move on um, from those dark days of Andrea Moda because then I want to move on to sports cars. And you said about driving for Spice USA, yeah, um, and that your sports cars, particularly at Le Mans, um, is pretty impressive. I mean that you know the the cars you run and the the performances i mean okay so didn't didn't actually get to cross the checker flag but yeah, um not once <laughs> but but nonetheless i mean that you did that and it seems to me that you you kind of concentrated very much on your single seater career mm. um and would it be fair to say that sports cars were always a sort of second option yeah, that absolutely fair to say that. In fact, also fair to say that not an option at all uh, until I got to F1 because my 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 focus was just on coming through Formula 4, Formula 3, Formula 3000. Yes, did sports cars in the States, but there was nothing else for me in Formula 3000 and then used that to get into F1. But I tell you something, Paul, I missed out really big time because I really love Group C. And if we go back many a year, then I would have loved to have driven in Can-Am. You know, I would love yeah. to have those cars. Wow, we absolute brutes. And I always, for me personally, the more power, the better, the more I enjoyed it, you know, and that was great. But, yeah, the sports cars, so there was no, after my Formula One career, <laughs> or lack of it, <laughs> well, I, I tested for Williams and Benetton, but... It wasn't the right time for me uh, to fit within their team. And there was the opportunity with Williams, and that, that was going to be between myself and Dave Coulthard. Um, but David got – it was going to be one of us, and David got the nod on that, which is understandable. You know, he was 10 years younger, connected with the team, ultra quick. So, you know, they, I, I totally understand it. You know, one of us had to lose that. So Dave got it, and that was the real beginning of Dave's career for, for F1. So it was kind of several times, including with Ken Tyrrell, actually, with me. It was close, but no cigar. So I was hovering around F1 for, for quite a while uh, and was you know, pretty well known by a lot of people in there, but never, never landed it just at that moment. But, you know, these things happen. So you're right. It was sports cars first joining the uh, Lotus GT championship team with um, um, Jan Lammers, great guy. Um, yeah and then moved on to the Chrysler Viper squad. Um, then it was the Panos team, me and Dave Brabham, driving for Dave Price racing in the GT World Championship. And then from there, it, then I got picked up by Audi to join uh, Michele Alberto, Stephanie Hansen, and James Weaver, Andy Wallace, Stefan Otelli. Uh, did I say Stephanie Hansen? Yeah, I did, yeah. yeah. That was, it was brilliant to be part of that squad. It Absolutely was. They're all passionate about going racing. But, you know, we had gearbox problems, so didn't finish the race. But, you know, it was all – it was brilliant. It was just great to go motor racing professionally at the top end. Yeah, it must have been after after what you had, should I say, suffered, uh, that it was – you know, you were at the very top end. We had uh, we had David Ingram on the on the show uh, a few months ago um, who put put together much of the Audi Sport UK stuff and he he looks back on that very very fondly and and you 
didn't you run the the R8C, which was the the coupe version of the of the Audi in '99? Yeah, I, I was chosen by Audi UK uh, to drive the R8C, as you said, uh, but I also drove for Audi Germany in the R8R. Right. So, that was me, Frank Bieler, and Emanuele Pirro uh, when we raced in America together there. And then in the UK, it was me, James Weaver, and Andy Wallace uh, in the R8C. But um, but we unfortunately, we weren't able to go back out the following year because of funding. And so Audi UK, unfortunately, froze up. And there was, there was no opportunity for me to join Audi Germany because their dance card was full. So And then they, then they started winning. And then we came back with Audi UK, uh, again, again, this is, you know, Dave Ingram was so central to Audi's motorsport program. He was a real driving force making these things happen. And uh, he was certainly one of the major driving forces in choosing me both times, you know. So he's, you know, David knows what I think of him. He's a, a, just a smashing guy who's um, so passionate about his motor racing, very knowledgeable, very, very knowledgeable about it. Yeah, and and you, you won't, you won't hear me disagree with you on, and, on and, that and, top man. Yeah. And obviously somebody who chooses, you know, got great tw- great taste in choosing drivers, obviously. Well, chose you, so that's good enough. Well, there, there you go, Paul. Yeah, that's <laughs> yeah. And I, I, I suppose, do you ever look back and think that you should have concentrated more on sports cars? I don't know. It's kind of, you know... I've been pretty good at making mistakes. Um, I've made enough <laughs> of them, you know. So I, I don't know the. Yeah, it was a mistake. I, I should have tried to have been, but if you try telling a twenty-six-year-old Perry that, yeah, still he'd tell you to get lost, you know. Yeah, yeah, um, because it's it's F one or nothing. That that really was, and to be fair to the twenty-six-year-old Perry, it had been that attitude that had kept me in. And that kept me coming up through the ranks, which, to be quite frank, was against the odds, you know. So, I don't know. Yeah. As Frankie once said, regrets, I've had a few, but then again, too few to mention. (laughs) Please don't burst into song. I was close, Paul. I was close. That was what I was worried about. Um, (laughs) (laughs) uh, Obviously, the title of your book um, is Flat Out, Flat Broke by Perry McCarthy, the original stick and I, I can't let you go without just touching on that as being you know those those days some some years later where uh, where you were the original um black clad stick and do you look back on that favorably now one adventure you know from when we first kicked the show off clearly nobody had any idea how big top gear was going to be in this reincarnation um, it got taken into 215 territories worldwide. And, of course, this Stiggy thing, who is the Stig, became an absolute phenomenon. You know, and who is the Stig? That question became one of the most asked on the Internet. It was just behind, is there a God and am I pregnant? <laughs> <laughs> who is the Stig? So, so to be part of that adventure kind of makes me smile because it's a – another unusual story in a in an unusual career. And I honestly, I don't go out of my way to try and be involved in unusual things, but that, that's how it's all fallen together. So sticky stuff has been good fun. Um, it wasn't really for me. I, you know, I just did the first year because dragging stuff around a track 
as fast as I can. Yeah, great stuff, fine. But, you know, I'm a racing driver, uh, not a test driver. Yeah, yeah. And obviously testing comes with a territory, being a racing driver, but but you get your, you get your race at the end of that. And even in testing, you're competitive because, you know, you want to see where your teammates stand and where your rivals to be for a race stand. So even that's more interesting. So, yeah, it wasn't for me not not saying anything clearly. I mean, Richard Hammond was always proud of the fact that they took the mouthiest driver in motor racing and found a way to shut him up. <laughs> Is that what he said? Yeah, yeah. So I said, don't worry about that, Sunshine. We've got the smallest TV presenter we could find. Put you in a jet car and made you even shorter. <laughs> so are you, are you still in touch with him? I saw Richard a couple of years ago. We had we had some drinks in town um, and bumped into James. Um, I had some drinks as well, but uh, I haven't seen Jeremy for a real long time. No, no. Um, I suppose, yes, it must be difficult because all of us who are involved in motor racing or in motor racing media or whatever, yeah, we kind of like the sound of our own voices and we, we like to be in the limelight a bit. And And for you to be categorically not must have been difficult. Well, I understood the nature of the, of, the, of, the, uh, of the role. And, you know, I did have some fun with it because I always used to stand with my arms crossed, um, you know, especially the amount of blimming things that went wrong in my pet lane, you know. So, <laughs> um, so, um, but it was funny that the morning after the first show, uh, Mike Brewer from We Had a Dealer sent me a text and just said, morning, Steve. <laughs> just, oh, really? Just, just could tell by the way I was standing. But, you know, I played the game. I did keep my mouth shut. But it did become a bit of an open secret in motor racing. But everybody was really good. And then after the first series, the um, the press got hold of it because I think that Top Gear fired somebody, um, a producer or something, and they went off and got five or ten grand or whatever it was from a Sunday newspaper on spilling the beans on who Stiggy was. But we played that one down carried it on. Then there was a bit of malarkey about I uh, supposed to have damaged um, Duncan Hamilton's classic D-type Jaguar, or that had been, I'd been alleged to have damaged it by his son, who was then looking for uh, a payout from the BBC, which was hogwash, um, because I, I know it's an old car, so I'm not going to sit there spinning the wheels and bending drive shafts and breaking the clutch, etc. And I was pretty annoyed about that. Um, but of course, being Stig, you know, it come into the papers the same Perry McCarthy, you know, just brained this car, right. and and we can't defend it because they don't want to admit that it's me as being Stig. And no, I just kind of thought, yeah, I thought, you know, you know, I'm kind of getting a bit fed up with this. The whole thing's a bit too one sided. Now, the um, it wasn't always going to be the Stig, was it? <laughs> <laughs> Jeremy said to me. And we've got this idea. We're going to have this secret racing driver, and you're going to be dressed in black, black boots, black gloves, black overalls, black crash helmet, black visor, and we're going to call you the Gimp. <laughs> I said, no, you're not. <laughs> oh, no, you're not. Yeah, I've seen Pulp Fiction. The Gimp was a real weird guy wearing a black leather mask who enjoyed doing nasty things to other chaps. And I thought, no, I'm not going to be known as the Gimp. But they were pretty serious about it. But I just said, look, you know, if you want to do it, get somebody else because this will come out one day, you know? Yeah. Um, and then I think they saw the um, reason to change as well, actually, and then changed it to the stick. And I went, yeah, okay, that's fine. Because <laughs> I am sure that 
had it not changed, the front cover of your book would not say the original GIMP. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> How can people get hold of it? Well, it's going to be, uh, I, I think it's going to be available like next week, something like that. But, uh, but I'm just waiting for the files to, to come back from the studios where we, uh, where we did it. Damon has just done the forward, which is really nice of him. So uh, that's being tacked on. Um, but I've actually just read somewhere that, that I tell you something, you, you probably know a hell of a lot more about this stuff than I do. Coming in as, as a newcomer to being self-publisher, as it were, you know, putting something yeah. out there on these different platforms, it's, I tell you, it makes, it makes driving a modern-day F1 look easy, trying to understand this marketplace. Yeah. So we're, we're getting there. I'll make sure that everybody knows about it uh, as soon as I've understood exactly who's going to distribute it for us because it, it has to be with somebody where you can download the app to be able to play it on the app. It just goes on forever, doesn't it, you know? I think malarkey comes to mind somewhere, doesn't it? Yeah, um, it's, yeah. Bit of, bit of time my new book. I, th I think... What we'll do is, as soon as you know the best way to for people to get hold of it, let us know, and we'll uh, we'll put it on the show, and we'll also um, put it on our Facebook page, so uh, that everybody can can get to it and and get it. But uh, I can thoroughly recommend both the book and the audio book. I think that they are superb pieces. They. They make you laugh. They make you cry a bit as well. And as you as you said, Perry, when you were just talking about it, that there are bits that do both. And I think that's that's the sign of of any any good book. But thank you for coming on and talking to us about it. And that we'll uh, we'll hope to catch up with you again soon. But thank you, Perry. Paul, thank you so much for having me on the show. All the very best to you and and your listeners. The historic racing news radio show. You know, that could have gone on for hours. It was it was great fun. And every time you talk to anybody about Perry McCarthy, they've always got another story. And it's it's just just brilliant stuff. So uh, the uh, the audio book is out now. And uh, I've, I very much urge you to go and find it. It's uh, it's available on Audible. It's available wherever you normally get your audio stuff from. Now, it's time to play The Corridors of Power. And, Paul, you've got a reputation to keep up for oddball nominations for this oh, opinion. Sorry, I was worried where that was going for a minute. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what's your first car to be considered? Well, before we even get that far, I just wanted to say, actually, that this was quite a difficult assignment. It's the really, really bad cars never actually made much impact at all on motorsport history. So this could have actually been a very short series of nominations. You know, I, I could have gone for the... <laughs> Not with you about it, couldn't. <laughs> I don't know what you're trying to say. There was the, the Derrington Francis, which is when well-known mechanic Al Francis persuaded a businessman called Vic Derrington that there was a phoenix in the ashes of the failed ATS project and they bought up some of the parts. They built a car found a Portuguese driver with the budget, appeared at the Italian Grand Prix, 1964 Italian Grand Prix, qualified a minute off the pace and retired the car during the race, never to be seen again. And then I could have gone for the Sega Maserati, built by Swiss, bro Swiss brothers Claude and George Gashnang. There's a name for motorsport history. 
that uh, failed to qualify for two Formula One races in 1962 before being taken hill climbing. But can I, I, can I just interrupt you with that one? Go on. The Gashnang brothers, one of them is the grandfather of Sebastian Buemi. Really? Yes. I wish oh, I'd known oh, that I, and been able to I, include I, I, it. I, I, and his, and his cousin, and his cousin, who her, her first name escapes me, has raced at Le Mans on more Nata- than one occasion. Natasha. Na- thank you, Natasha Gashnang. That's right. Cool. I'll, t- I'll tell you what, Jim. We have both out-triviaed Jerdy. <laughs> I'm going to tiptoe wow. off into no, the that, distance that at this point. That is an absolute first. Uh, it oh. is. It is. But, um, but, okay, so, so those are the but, ones you're not picking. What are the ones you are? I was going to say, I am frantically butting here now. Um, yeah, but I did manage to find three that I could talk about. So I'm going to start with the Eiffel Land. Now, in 1972, the Formula One season, some featured some famous teams on the grid. There was Lotus, Ferrari, BRM, Tyrrell, and Team Eiffelland Caravans. Now, not many caravan manufacturers have ever held ambitions to join Formula One. And, uh, you know, we've yet to see te- teams fielded by Swift or Airstream. But uh, Eiffelland Caravan <laughs> owner, Gunter oh, Heinrich. Oh, oh, excuse, excuse me, sir. I've got an, another piece of trivia for you then. Oh, my God. Go on. Swift Caravans, who are the biggest manufacturers of caravans in the UK. If there's a link to Frank Bradley and Swift Cars, I'm leaving. No, there isn't. Is owned by the family of Guy Smith, Le Mans winner in a Bentley. So there is a tangential link. <laughs> Sorry, carry on. But anyway, back back to Team Eiffelland <laughs> Caravans. I mean, this is like being heckled, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, so, an easier gig than Friday night for you, Paul. <laughs> <laughs> Moving on, yes. So sensibly, they chose to buy in a chassis for the early stages of their campaign and bought a March 721, which Dennis Jenkinson in Motorsport magazine said will be thinly disguised to look like something else, though not a caravan, I hope. Right. So the March did appear wearing very distinctive bodywork designed by Luigi Coloni, with, with the air intake in front of the cockpit as opposed to up behind the driver, as it was on most of the cars of that period. And, and a single rear view mirror on a stalk directly in front of the driver, almost like a, a proto halo in a way. And the car originally had a wedge shaped broad nose, but, but in a rare good decision in this entire project, that was replaced by the standard March unit when it was found to be helping the front of the car actually lift under acceleration. Now, of course, the nose that they did go for was that classic March tea tray. So it looked weird anyway, and uh, somehow was strangely suitable for the Eiffelland. So, labelled as the Eiffelland 21 Ford, because it had that ubiquitous Ford Cosworth V8 in the back, the car appeared at the South African Grand Prix in the, in the capable hands of Rolf Stommelman, so uh, no slouch, who managed to bring it home 10th in Monaco and also 10th at the British Grand Prix. But by that time, Eiffelland had been taken over and the new owners weren't as convinced about the marketing benefits of Formula One as the original owners had been. And so, uh, right after the Austrian Grand Prix, the assets were bought by a certain um, Bernie Eccleston. <laughs> for somewhere between 25 and 30,000 pounds. And uh, by the end of the season, the chassis was back in standard March bodywork and actually gave John Watson his debut. So in that form, it wasn't a bad car, but as the Eiffelland itself, well, I think it fits the bill. Yes. Good stuff. Second one. The second one is the Scarab. Now, Motorsport's littered with the wreckage of projects, but the Scarab story is one with all the elements of a Hollywood blockbuster. A young playboy who was heir to a fortune, his famous mother for whom the phrase poor little rich girl was coined, the plucky underdogs who dared to dream they could do better than the famous established teams, and a classic what-if ending to their glorious failure. Now, 
Lance Reventlow was the young man in question, and, and Barbara Hutton, his mother, the continent-spanning Woolworth retail empire, the source of their fortune. So, yeah, good old family money. So Reventlow has started racing when age 19 in a Cooper Bobtail and then a Maserati. And uh, actually having lied about his age, because apparently under SCCA rules at the time, you had to be 21. And he actually had some real success before they rumbled his actual birth date, at which point he headed to Europe. And uh, in almost one of his first acts was to uh, to write the Maserati off at Snetterton. There's a good few people who've done things like that over the years. So while he was looking at a replacement, he visited Lister's workshop and was basically amazed how backwards their setup was. And then his opinion was only really reinforced when he later went to Maserati and surveyed the chaos of their factory. And, uh, you know, this was, of course, at a time when Archie Scott Brown in the listers was a man to beat in sports cars and Maserati had just taken Fangio to his fifth world title. So Reventlow, probably quite rightly in a way, felt that an organized and funded America team could actually challenge the best. So uh, the first car they came out with was a sports car and Reventlow and Chuck Daig. And Jim, Jim, did I pronounce Chuck Daig correctly? Chuck Daig, yes. Yeah, fantastic. I'd only ever seen it written, it occurred to me, and I'd never actually heard anyone say his surname. And congratulations for Reventlow, because I spent most of my life calling him Reventlow until uh, I actually went to the US and heard people talking about him in the in the proper way. Me too, if it helps. I, <laughs> Just like I Dreamer. You got to have didn't, Dreamer. <laughs> I didn't know there were two options, and now I'm going to be fixated on getting it right. So they had a lot of success in in that Chevy their Chevy powered sports cars, and uh, they used the name Scarab as a little dig at the fancy European teams with their uh, you know, grand names, because uh, you know a Scarab is another word for a dung beetle, essentially the lowest of the low. So uh, after one successful season, the sports cars were sold to focus on a Formula One project, and they designed a front engine space frame with a four cylinder Offenhauser engine giving two hundred thirty horsepower, and the engine was canted over at an angle to reduce frontal area. So cutting edge stuff. The, the car was originally intended to have bladder-type brakes at the front. And now I'd never even heard of this before till my research came up this one. But apparently it's what was used on aircraft at the time. And you actually have an expanding bladder inside the brake unit that pushes the, the shoes against the drum brake. Not really? surprised it didn't catch on. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, the, the brakes actually proved time-consuming to get right. So they ended up putting girling disc brakes on it, which Reventlow was apparently gutted to the core to use because it was the one non-American element on the car. And, you know, you would say one thing, the car was beautifully built, beautifully designed, and arrived in Monaco for the opening round of the 1964 Formula One season. A superb low-line front-engine car. When Ferrari were debuting their first rear-engine car, Jack Brabham was the reigning world champion, having won the title in a rear-engine Cooper Climax, and Lotus was selling the light, light and nimble rear-engine Lotus 18 to the customers. So, uh, Yep, having found quickly that their Goodyear tyres were too hard for Monaco, the Scarab switched to Dunlops, but neither driver looked like qualifying. This is, no. So they asked Sterling Moss, who'd actually go on to win the race in a Lotus, into trying their car. And can you imagine that today? It's like someone from Haas <laughs> yes. wandering up the pit lane and uh, say, Lewis, Lewis, look, look, mate, do you fancy a couple of laps to tell us what's going on with the car? Yes. It's just not going to happen, is it? But it's fantastic. But Moss actually went round seven seconds quicker than Reventlow and Hager manage, but was still nine seconds off the pole time. So both cars actually did qualify at the Dutch Grand Prix, but they're outside the top 15, which meant you didn't get the start money. I've just looked at my notes. and My note says tart money. That's, I'm so glad I didn't read that out. <laughs> and, uh, 
<laughs> so, so, probably so more they... accurate. But... <laughs> yeah, that's so, what the, that's what the front was. Yeah. <laughs> so that so yep. So they they withdrew from the race because they weren't going to make any money. And at Spa, they were actually twenty seconds off Jack Brabham's pole time, and uh, both cars retired in the race. Next up was Reims for the French Grand Prix, and they actually had Ferrari's permission to put Richie Ginther in one of the cars. But both cars hit problems. They ran out of spares, and that was that. And the Scarabs went home. Reventlo later said that the timing was wrong, and frankly, that's hard to argue with, and that the car would have been competitive in 1958, maybe. But those Monaco qualifying times would have actually struggled to have made the 1954 grid. The cars had less power than that 1960-winning Moss, uh, Lotus, Lotus that Moss drove and were 10% heavier, both you know, handicaps that's impossible to overcome. But slightly against the brief, the cars weren't in themselves bad cars. They were beautifully put together and probably one of the best looking of the front engine cars. But they were running to a design philosophy Formula One had already moved on from and were not only out of pace, but were out of place and out of time. Good stuff. So we move on to the third one, Paulie. What have we got? Right. Now I'm going for the techno. And the Techno was, again, another 1970s car. And, you know, sometimes you've got all the ingredients in place to make a memorable meal, and, and somehow they never quite blend together to make anything tasty. And that really pretty much sums up the Techno Formula One campaign. Luciano and Gianfranco Pedazzani actually had a good history of building rapid carts and then race cars. And Clay Reconsoni won the 1970 Formula Two title in the Techno. So uh, plans were then made to enter Formula One. And uh, by September 71, they had their own flat 12 engine running and producing a competitive 460 brake horsepower. Let's just pause for a minute. So a company with a reputation as a chassis builder suddenly designs and builds a brand new flat 12 engine, Mm -hmm. a layout popular with a certain other Italian manufacturer that is producing good horsepower. Now, it's been suggested in certain circles that the engine was actually built from drawings that somehow made their way out of the back door of a certain Marinello-based design office. (laughs) Right. But, uh, yeah, that's never been proven, but it's it's a lovely story, if true. So the engine was actually okay. And by October 71, a space frame chassis was ready to test at Modena with outboard suspension, the ubiquitous Hewling gearbox. And uh, in a flashback to the Lancia D50 of the 1950s, Fuel tanks and radiators manufactured out on outriggers between the wheels. And unfortunately, I couldn't find a picture of that car, but I'm desperate to see that. So, um, yeah, as I said earlier on, the ingredients were good. And, you know, they had that good engine. But they also had team manager David York, who they poached from sports car giant, just giants JWA, who'd been running the, the Golf Porsche 917s. They had wow. Firestone tires, Martini backing. And uh, Nana Galli and Derek Bell were announced as drivers and neither slouched the pair. So uh, Galli was actually testing that original car early 72, actually in January, when um, realisation dawned that the car was not only way too heavy, but actually wider than the regulations allowed. Slight oversight in the design stage. (laughs) So they built another car. This is a bit of a theme, by the way, that will develop. Um, This was a monocoque called the PA123. And in testing and development carried on, but at a slow pace to the extent that Martini was showing their frustration at the timescale. And uh, under pressure from the sponsor, one car was in the pit lane for the Belgian Grand Prix. The reaction of the assembled Formula One circuits was probably not what Techno wanted because the overbearing weight of comment was about how tatty the car looked and how badly they appeared to be built. So Galli and Bell alternated in the cars through the European Grand Prix's. 
And uh, even a new suspension designed by Ron Tornak could not extract any more pace. And at the Austrian Grand Prix, Gaddy finished nine laps down. Two cars were actually out for the only time at the Italian Grand Prix, and Bell, Bell actually failed to qualify in one of his just two outings. And uh, he was actually supposed to drive then the car at the French Grand Prix at Clermont-Ferrand, a circuit he went very, very well at. And in practice, he was happy with the car, first practice. But it got no quicker as the weekend progressed. As the other teams found pace, the techno slipped down the order until Bell qualified dead last. So on race morning, he turned up in the paddock and was met by David York, who said, you're not driving today, Derek. Derek, basically, you know, as any driver would, asked why. And uh, York walked him across to the car where a mechanic was busy with a welding torch and explained that of the nine securing bolts for the engine, which was a stressed member, support the rear suspension, four had snapped and the te- techno was essentially bending in the middle. With wow. bolts, bolts breaking as the practice sessions had progressed and it was really explained why they weren't gaining any performance because the car was just getting bendier and bendier. Now... If, ni- if 1972 had been a disappointment for the team, they excelled themselves a year later. They, they actually did make changes. They got McLaren mechanic Alan McCall to design another new car, oddly enough also called the PA123, which I can only think just saved on reprinting the PR material maybe. <laughs> and the team said the engine had been improved, and that, but there was little evidence of it, though everyone did say it sounded absolutely spectacular. Now, a number of drivers were suggested and linked to the project, but it was a bit of a surprise when Rapid Kiwi Chris Amon was actually announced as the driver, although cunningly his contract was with Martini and Rossi rather than with Techno. Now, having Amon in the car may have been a bit of a moment because Chris Amon was much admired by his peers and a fine and quick driver, but also a person with an amazing ability to somehow end up in the right car at the wrong time, the wrong car at the right time, to join a successful team just as their fortunes fell through the floor or to leave a team only to find their new car for the next season was the seat to have. Yes. You know, he's often regarded as the best driver never to win a Grand Prix. Now, Eamon persuaded everyone that what they needed was another new car. So the wedge-shaped E371 was built by John Thompson's up in Northampton, and the finished tub was actually transported to Italy on the roof rack of one of the mechanic's cars, which they declared at customs to be an empty box so that they could get it through without any paperwork. Now... They say that in life you should play to your strengths, and Techno did, going from one disappointing car in 72 to two disappointing cars the very next year. <laughs> the, the PA123 finally raced at the Belgian Grand Prix in May, and Eamon somehow brought the car home sixth, despite being baked in the cockpit, which had the radiator pipes passing either side of the driver. His oh, nice. lap back to the pits to the checkered flag was pretty much at race pace because he was so desperate to get out the car, and he was apparently totally dehydrated with burns to his back and feet. So he's probably quite happy that the car retired at Monaco. And uh, with that new wedge-shaped E371 expected to make its debut at the French Grand Prix, Eamon and team manager York turned up at the circuit, only to find the transporter stayed in Bologna as the team were arguing with Martini over money. They, they, they made it to Silverstone and Sandvoort and retired at both. And uh, then the long-awaited E371, which, uh, in Eamon's words, leaked from, every, leaked from everywhere with fuel, water and oil pouring out of it when they first fired it up actually did some slow laps at the Austrian Grand Prix. And with the PA123 not much quicker, the team withdrew, never to be seen again. So the, the, the thing was, worst cars. I would say Techno managed an impressive hat-trick of three Duff cars, <laughs> which not even th- some highly rated drivers could extract anything resembling decent pace from. Wow, thank you. Thank you for that. And um, I think the... And there's two two comments I'll make. Um, with the techno, how many clutches did it have? <laughs> just, just the one, which could have been where they were going wrong, to be quite frank. And um, 
that Jim, I, I'm afraid I have to say to you, um, follow that. Well, you know, I could have chosen the Lincar 006. I yeah. could have chosen the Kausen WK 001 or the Mackie F101 to stay with Paul's, you know, uh, far out there and bizarre uh, trivia. However, you know me. I like a little bit of controversy. So the three I've chosen are all cars that competed for an entire season and proved to be very unsuccessful despite great names, great lineage. And in fact, one of them ended the Formula One career of a world champion. So we begin with the Lotus 43. Hold on, hold on, before you scream foul. It's rare that Colin Chapman had any designs that would be called a failure, but this was it. Now, this car was designed for the 1966 season, and this is when the new three-liter engine regulations were coming in. Chapman based this car on the Lotus 38 IndyCar, and he hoped to take advantage of the experience that they had at Indianapolis with the bigger capacity engine, bigger tires and suspension setups, that they learned from the 500. The car was supposed to have the Cosworth DFV, but that car, that engine was still in development. So Chapman had to make a deal with BRM and they used the P75H16 power plant. Now, now one aside, this was the car that was the first to use the engine as a stressed member for the chassis. So the BRM change became very significant for a lot of reasons, that being one of them. And that design, while it was a failure in this car, pardon me, it was lauded as part of the very successful Lotus 49 that debuted just a year later. The BRM engine indeed proved to be the car's Achilles heel. It was so overweight, it took four men to unload the first one from the truck when it arrived. Besides being pudgy, it was unreliable It was underpowered, and it proved to be the team's recipe for failure. Besides that, it was quite good. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) The car missed its first scheduled race at Monaco, which, you know, nowadays would be tantamount to causing the failure of the entire world, and was debuted (laughs) at Belgium at Spa, but it didn't even make the race because the engine expired in practice and they didn't have a spare. The car showed up again in Italy, but retired from the race with a gearbox failure. Now, at Watkins Glen that year, Clark gave the car its only success. The the engine, of course, blew up in practice, but the BRM, because they were in the States and the next race was going to be Monaco, had an extra engine with them. So Chapman was able to borrow that engine from BRM and replace the blown one. And Clark pussyfooted around the racetrack as a race of attrition happened around him and he nursed the car to the checkered flag, winning the race. (laughs) That success uh, and the fact that the design was what really moved forward to Lotus 49 is not why it's going to be my number one entry. Uh, I'll, I'll tip my hand there, but that indeed was one of the rare failures of Colin Chapman, the Lotus 43. So Jim, what's your second one? Well, the second one is probably going to be even more controversial. It's the Ferrari 312 T5. Now, the T5 is important before everybody thinks I'm I'm imbibing in edibles or something here in America. <laughs> the, the 312 series up to the T4 was 
indeed probably the most successful Ferrari. We can argue that point in another show. But it did boast 40 wins and 188 starts. That's a pretty good record. Four Constructors' Championships and three driving titles. But all of that ended in 1980. Fresh off the World Championship with Jody Schechter, the 312 T5 was Mario Fagari's development of that wildly successful T4. But this was the dawning of the turbo era, and Renault debuted the hyper-quick RE20. The T5 countered with a smaller, powerful, uh, more powerful engine, they, they said, uh, new suspension, rear brake changes, all these to try and take advantage of the burgeoning ground effects. However, that smaller engine proved slow and unreliable, and the race and failed. The car had 10 engine failures in 14 races. You take that lack of reliability, combine it with the fact that Michelin, a French company, only had eyes for Renault at that point, and the turbo cars, which were starting to really, Renault was really proving that technology, and in the monkey see, monkey do world of Formula One, that's where things were going. The car was also a handful to drive because all the Michelin tires were really focused on the turbo cars, and this was a normally aspirated car. So the team literally went from heroes to zeros with no wins, no podiums, and a 10th place finish in the Constructors' Championship, which I am pretty sure was next to last. For Gary was demoted. Harvey Postlewaite got the job. He was hired away from another team that we'll be talking about in a moment. He took over. The 126 C2 was born in 1981, and, of course, the rest is history there. But that car cost for Gary his position within Ferrari. Uh, he went on to work, continued to, to work for Ferrari, but it caused lots of political problems. So that, that T, uh, 312 T5 was a, a huge failure and a sea change for Ferrari in the scope of Formula One. Now, Jim, you've set everybody's minds racing now because everybody's thinking, Harvey Postlethwaite, he went to Ferrari. Where did he go before that? So uh, put us out of our misery. What's your next one? Well, the next one is probably, and and much like Scarab, um, that my erstwhile competitor and colleague, Mr. Jurd, put forth, uh, I'm going to put the umbrella of all of the cars that came from this team. And that would be Copper Sucre. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> See, that, that's all you need. Ladies and gentlemen, I rest my case. They all giggle. <laughs> I picked this car because it was not only bad, it brought to the end uh, a great Formula One career for Emerson Fittipaldi. Now, Emerson went from Lotus to McLaren, brought McLaren to really to prominence in the Formula One paddock with the 74 title. It was their first real big success since since Bruce had passed. But the team was called Fittipaldi Automotive, and it started in 1975 with the FD04, which Wilson drove to very little success. Then Emerson joined the family enterprise, so Wilson took over team management. They tried to run the team out of Brazil, but it proved to be troublesome because of supply chain issues and lack of access to expert personnel. So they moved the team to Reading in 1976. 
the subsequent series of cars that started with the, the FD04 in 76, the F5 in 77, the F5A, F6A, F7 and 8, which were used from 78 through 80. They managed to only finish 50 of 88 races and they failed to qualify for a further 11. And this is amazing considering that you had guys like Joe Ramirez, Harvey Postlewaite, Adrian Newey all kind of go through the door there. And in fact, Postlewaite was hired away from the Fittipaldi automotive team when he went to work for Ferrari. Because at the end of the 80 season, Emerson, who was only 33 at the time, retired saying he was too involved in the team's problems to make things work. He said he'd lost total focus. He he moved on. He lost his family because he he uh, it, there was a divorce. Um, became estranged from from the kids for a while, and it wasn't until he moved back he moved to America in the in the late eighties that he rekindled his career. So here's a guy who retired in thirty three. If he hadn't left McLaren in nineteen seventy six, imagine what might have happened if he had stayed either with McLaren or, or went with another yeah. established team. Uh, it's, it's sad. Uh, and, and really, um, you know, he obviously knew how to drive still because he had great success in the American IndyCar scene. Yeah. So indeed. It wasn't Emerson. Indeed. It was the cars. Right. So, uh, yeah, an interesting set of, uh, of circumstances there. And it's very, very rude of us to, leave our guest until last um, for which I apologise but I thought you you might benefit from hearing what utter drivel we'll talk uh, the rest of the time Snowy uh, Can I just say it takes me a long time to be this bad? <laughs> that's uh, that's paraphrasing Dolly Parton isn't it? <laughs> no, no, it takes a lot of money to look this trashy That's the one, that's the one Yeah, um, Snowy uh, what, have, uh, what have you got on your list? What's your what, first one? Very kind of you. Thank you, Paul. And uh, it, it has given me the opportunity to realise just how much uh, I've got to live up to from the, the previous two. Um, I was going to list out three cars and be done. I thought it was all over in a minute, but um, that's another story. Um, the first <laughs> thing I'm going to mention is uh, the Ferguson P99, uh, as it was actually known, the Ferguson Climax. Uh, for lots and lots of reasons of that, and you might find it odd for a car that actually won a Formula One race, uh, not a Grand Prix as such. Uh, but for various reasons, um, it was designed by Ferguson Research Limited, who were, of course, an English tractor company. I'm sure they exported uh, worldwide. Um, so why wouldn't you, as a tractor builder in the 1950s, 60s, want to build a Formula One car? Seems perfectly logical. Well, Lamborghini did. Well, exactly. Um and they had no less than Rob Walker racing team actually run the car for them. Um, it was four-wheel drive, and this was probably its downfall, not because it was four-wheel drive, but because the the layout they wanted to design with it, uh, to run with, were necessitated it being front-engined, which was exactly the wrong time in the sports history to stay with a front-engined uh, Grand Prix car um, in terms of weight distribution. They had Claude Hill as part of the design team, had been very, very successful at Aston Martin in the 1940s uh, and through the 50s. And uh, you'd have thought it would it would be, you know, a winning formula, no pun intended. Um, it didn't help that as they designed it and partway through the, the project that the governing body decided to 
uh, change the rules and reduce um, power output of engines or reduce size of Formula One by 40%. Sorry, the capacity size, not the power output uh, for 1961. So having gone from a two and a half litre Climax engine, it suddenly had to have a one and a half litre Climax four cylinder engine. But uh, <laughs> undaunted, they persisted, uh, ended up with the, the Coventry Climax uh, FPF uh, engine in it. Um, and it was given to, obviously, Rob Walks, I mentioned, to run it. Jack Fairman, again, of Aston Martin uh, background, was uh, chosen to in the car. A slightly unauspicious start uh, at the British Grand Prix at Aintree when he crashed it on the second lap. Uh, it's not the car's fault. Um, he did drive it again, but he actually uh, handed over to a gentleman called Sterling Moss after his Lotus had failed, would you believe? Uh, as you did in those days, I think Paul was saying, uh, Paul Jurdy was saying earlier about come and test our car. You can imagine halfway through a race, uh, handing over from one car to the other, and you couldn't get much different from a Lotus 18 to a four-wheel drive front-engine Ferguson um, P90. Oh, yeah. um, ironically, poor old um, Sterling, the car was actually uh, disqualified from that race for um, outside assistance. Um, it does, however, go down in, uh, I think, motor racing uh, history, if you like, or, m- or mortality, as um, being the only Formula One car to win a Formula One, sorry, yeah, a Formula One race, the International Gold Cup at Alton Park, um, which I think is is quite special. So it's it's one of those cars where it's it did win a race, albeit not a Grand Prix, but it just came came at the wrong time. Had all the all the ingredients, as Paul Jurd was saying earlier, for many things. It's a bit like um, uh, Jim's um, comments about the T five uh, Ferrari three one two T five. You know, having won the championship. Where did that car come from? Not as bad, perhaps, as cars I could have mentioned, like the T6 Ferrari, which had the six wheels, four wheels at the back, and the T8, which had four wheels at the front. And nobody quite believed it at the time. And it was finally admitted to by Ferrari that it was a complete mock-up just to gain publicity and keep interest going at the time. But there's, <laughs> there's a Formula 1 car for you. The I've Ferrari never heard that the story. T8. I know, it's quite extraordinary. I think they basically placed four wheels at the front like a P34 Tyrrell and took some photographs of it and put it in the press to keep people interested. I mean, it was. I think it, you're exactly right. Yeah. They actually tested the real wheel car at, yeah. at Modena, but yeah. it was a it was it was a joke. So I, I think because I, th- I think both Reutemann and Lauda tested that car. And I, I yeah, think they did. Basically, as I understand, it wasn't six wheeled; it was six tired, as in the rear yes. wheel. Had it was a one rim with two covers on. It looked like an American dually, you know what? Yeah. A, a dually yeah. pickup truck. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Okay. So yeah, so that's that's my first uh, thought. Despite despite it being a car that did win a Formula One race, uh, it's uh, it was just the wrong time. And your next one, I'm going to surprise a few people here, a bit like Jim with his um uh, his Ferrari nomination. Uh, Aston Martin DBR5, and mm. 5 is the important part, uh, similar to the T5. Um, Aston Martin, um, absolutely peerless in sports car racing in the late 50s, building all that momentum to that incredible 1959 Le Mans 1-2 uh, with the, the DBR cars, the sports cars. They decided to still build a Formula 1 car. I think it was actually down to pressure from particularly uh, European, mostly French, I understand, um, 
dealers that they wanted to sell the cars and they could do more so the sports cars was great but formula one would really give them you know the, the key they wanted in the, in the market um so they they designed the dbr4 and it's quite important to mention dbr4 first because everybody remembers that car um you know particularly this year with aston martin back in formula one and this is the car that you know did do it last time the it was basically a db3s sports car underneath um with its uh two litre engine but it was aerodynamically it was it looked pretty but it wasn't pretty it wasn't very aerodynamic and they weren't using wind tunnels and stuff then even though some teams had started to its biggest problem being it was front engine still uh, but just for sheer perseverance and going against all uh, sense rhyme and reason having had the dbr4 fail they still built the dbr5 which i think is just Hats off to them. Whoever <laughs> got that past the board is absolutely <laughs> extraordinary. You know, we, we can't build a Formula One car. We can win we can win the World Sports Car Championship. We can win them on. And Nurbreg and we've got all the right people driving the car. Um we can't build a sport we can't build a Formula One car. No, but we can try again. Let's build another one. <laughs> Incredible. Right. So uh so I mean there speaks, ladies and gentlemen, the uh the competition secretary of the Aston Martin. I did. I did think I was being brave putting that in, but um, it was lovely knowing you all. And <laughs> yeah. there we go. Oh, there's there's always a home for you here, Snowy. It's just it's <laughs> just you. when you've uh, you. when you've when you've tired of all your other options. Yes. There are others that think this way too. <laughs> What's your last one? Well, before I get to that, I mean, Jim has mentioned it also already once, which I thought was interesting. There, there are a couple of things that uh, Paul said uh, you couldn't mention. Obviously, the Andrea Moda. Um, I think one car that probably uh, was a very good nomination that uh, just didn't, uh, nobody's mentioned yet, is the uh, BRMP 207. Um, a car that uh, was so, so slow uh, that it was six seconds not off the pace but six seconds off the car in front of it still um and didn't you're gonna have, you're gonna have to help me with the p p207 it's 1977 brm um and a british journalist at the time claimed that they were actually ashamed of being british um and it did do the brazilian grand prix but it was absolutely appalling and effectively it was a car that marked the end of brm in formula one one of the one of the greats and just 10, 15 years later, it's gone. The, the P207. Yeah, it overheated, um, didn't it? Uh, I, 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 yeah. I'm, not, I'm, not surpri- I'm not sure it ran long enough to overheat, actually. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, um, it, did, uh, it did the 71, 77 British Grand Prix, sorry, Brazilian Grand Prix, my apologies, where it broke on lap one due to overheating. It doesn't, yeah. it doesn't all go well, does it? <laughs> no, no, it's not, it's not a good sign. But um, uh, no, I, I think... Um, I that think, was that was the car driven by Mike Wilds for a very short period of time, wasn't it? Ah, uh, the man, the man who dared to suggest to Mr. Stanley that what he needed was a DFV. Yes, and there's that that's famous, right. Yes. There's that famous uh, cartoon as the not. Um, yes. There's one other nomination that I think before I get to mine, uh, it has been mentioned already. The one I'm going to come to, but just to keep the tent, tension building, um, the Lola T9730 of 1997. Oh, yeah, yes. it was uh, sponsored by Mastercard, and basically Mastercard. Uh, was so desperate to get the car out, which was due to be for 1998, uh, it basically got put on, into, pressurised into being built. Imagine this. I know 1997 is probably longer ago in our minds than any of us want to admit to, 
Um, but even in those days, it wasn't tested on track or in a wind tunnel before it went to a Grand Prix. Can you imagine that? No. no. <laughs> Is it any wonder it didn't fail? It failed. It didn't work. It was outdated. Uh, I think its gearbox was in the wrong place. It just had, funnily enough, one of its one of its main reasons for failing was it had described at the time by somebody as having non-existent aerodynamics. And it and, and, and much and much like the the failure of the uh, BRM, this really was a blow to Lola. Yeah, it was. Uh, because it, it was in the height of their trying to be the you know their the, their Indy cars and that sort of stuff. That was a horrible blow to Lola, and and one they never really rebounded from. I don't think. No, I, I agree. I agree. That's uh, sadly that's a couple of cars I picked there for making making teams fail. But um, uh, my my top nomination is uh, is a car that um, Jim did mention actually, and I'm going to go with it. Is the uh, I've always called it a Mackie, but call it a Mackie F101. Um, which had all the pressure and honour of the Japanese nation on it uh, as Honda were drawn from Formula One back in 1968. So in 1974, uh, they entered uh, the Mackay in the British Grand Prix with no lesser driver than Howden Ganley at the wheel. Yeah? Mm, yeah. Yeah. It failed to qualify. So they got it sorted and took it to the following Grand Prix, the German Grand Prix, um, where, unfortunately, he had a, a serious accident in it and badly injured his legs and ankles, and that was actually effectively the end of um, Howden Ganley's uh, F1 career. It, uh, it closed it down for him, really. But it had – they went away and tried to re-engineer it, and it reappeared at the 1975 Dutch Grand Prix. And this is a time when privateers could still to win uh, Grand Prix. Funnily enough, that very race, as in – um, James Hunt in the Hesker. Oh, um, right, yeah. They brought it back as a, a the F101C then. Not quite sure what the C stood for. It was alleged at the time that it had sponsorship from Citizen Watches. Well, so, I, have a, I have a word, but I can't use it. <laughs> well, Jim, I wasn't even going to go there. That's why I thought... Well, I'm, I'm American. The Citizen Watches. <laughs> um, so the point was at the time that there was only 25 entrants in the race. It was guaranteed uh, starting place. Uh, it had a DFE, so you know it didn't look the prettiest car in the world, to say the very, very least. Um, but guess what? The one bit that broke in practice was the DFE, not the car. Oh. <laughs> I mean, how, how unfortunate can you get? Um, and that, um, that effectively uh, also, we talked about Perry McCarthy earlier, somebody else that should have had a, a better shot at Formula One. It's driver by then, um, Howden Ganley had been replaced by no less than Tony Trimmer. Yeah, he tried to try to qualify for the Austrian Grand Prix. It didn't make it, uh, and its only its only race it actually completed was a non-championship Swiss Grand Prix, where it finished. Guess where? Last, last six laps behind Clay Regazzoni's Ferrari. Oh, six <laughs> laps in thirteenth place. Yeah. Unlucky for some. Yeah. Um, and it just, it, I think it's just on, on so many levels. So those, those, those are my three. Well, you know, and, and, and one, one other little note of trivia that, that uh, I'm sure she was just being nice to the guys because the, the, the people that were responsible, the, the design team and, uh, and whatnot for the, for the Mackay, which is the correct pronunciation. You were absolutely right on that. Uh, were also uh, very significant. They went on a couple of years later, uh, to do the Kojima KE007, which 
look that one up. And oh, um, right. yeah, that was, that was the same uh, team, was it? One, one race only at the Japanese Grand Prix. Great story. 1976 Japanese Grand Prix. Yeah, that's yep. yeah, that's right. Yeah, and it was dead, so, dead last. That's yep. uh, that's going to be your um your your car that you're putting forward for judging. Is it snowy? It is indeed. Jim, which is yours? Um. Well, in fairness, because of the Copper Suker, I listed like eight cars. I'm going to go with the Ferrari 312 T5. Okay. Not the T6 or the T8. Well, no, because <laughs> they never raced. Actually. Well, the T6 did, but the T8 didn't. And, Paul, what are you going for? Right, well, obviously up against some strong opposition. I have to say the Mackay sounds like it ought to have been Scotland's national race team. I was just thinking the same <laughs> wow. thing. I I, I absolutely bow to Jim's superior knowledge. I've always called it the Mackie, and it and it always sounded a bit wishy washy, you know. Oh, look, here's the Mackie. That was, um, that was but, just a driver. Yeah. <laughs> but but the but uh, the Mackie sounds uh, altogether more intimidating. Paul, what's yours? Well, Jim stood down his copy of Sukar because obviously it's a range of cars, but frankly, I've got no morals at all, so I'm going to stick with Techno for just getting it wrong so often. <laughs> Just before we do anything, can I just add one tiny bit of trivia for you, Jim? I think or all of you, like, but Jim will like this one as well. Uh, the fastest lap of the, of the 1976 Japanese Grand Prix, yes. where the Kojima was, was accredited to the Kojima KE007. Yeah? Yeah. Right. Because it had overtaken three cars in that lap. So the Japanese officials actually <laughs> so hurt, sense of honor in Japan, that their car had finished last. They actually lied and set the fastest lap to save appearances. Really? Absolutely yes. genuine bit of trivia for you. Yes. Oh, I love that. That's. Uh... So ne- never mind James Hunt winning the world championship and Nicoletta pulling out for very no. simple reasons. Yeah, exactly. The Kojima exactly. got the fastest lap at the Japanese Grand Prix. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Land of the Rising Sun. The Historic Racing News Radio Show. Just to give myself a little bit of um, of thinking time, I just want to talk about a, a book that I've just been reading, which has just come out, called uh, the. It's called Colin Chapman Inside the Innovator, and it's by Carl Ludvig, Ludvigsen, which is published by Evro Publishing. Uh, that Colin Chapman and genius apply. Very often. I mean, there's there's lots of sentences that have those two parts in them. And this book expands on the technical part of, of Chapman's life. I mean, I suppose the other word that people would talk about with Colin Chapman would be colourful. And that, you know, we know he had a colourful life, but it doesn't cover all his exploits. It's mainly about his designs and his leadership and lots of technical bits which are way beyond me and I don't even begin to understand. It's broken down into transmissions, suspensions, um, structures, aerodynamics, downforce, all of which were things that he he kind of either started or or grew. You know, that things like a monocoque Formula One car with the Lotus 25, there had been plenty of monocoque cars before then even before world war ii but he was the one who who did that i love the story incidentally of uh that when when he took the lotus 25 to um to its first grand prix when he had been 
madly selling Lotus 24s, which were virtually the same car, but with a tube frame, space frame chassis in it rather than the monocoque. And Rob Walker, who had bought a Lotus 24, walked past the Lotus pits, looked in the cockpit and looked back at Colin Chapman and said, I say, Colin, you seem to have forgotten to put the chassis in this one, <laughs> which I think is a is a great line. But nonetheless, it's a it's a great book. Um, there's there's lots of stuff. They talk about his management style as well. He, an unkind person would say, used people. Um, a kinder person would say, developed people. But he would say, right. I've got this idea that we'll use the DFE as a stress member in the Lotus 49 and then would say to somebody else, so go and design it. He was that, that kind of man, but he did. I mean, Jim, Jim, you'll remember he created some amazing and groundbreaking cars. But did, did, he, did he ever build a car with seven clutches? <laughs> <laughs> no, um, thank God. <laughs> <laughs> no. No, we, but, we, we but, get Bradley back for for another hour and a half talking about seven Yeah, countries. exactly. Well, I, know, I know the days when the Lotus Cortinas were, and my father was an absolute pedant on this one, and, and you met my father a few times over the years. Yes. Uh, and he would, uh, he'd always, for instance, he'd always say, uh, he'd never describe it as a Hoover, it was a vacuum cleaner, and it was a, a ballpoint pen, not a biro, yeah? <laughs> and he was always adamant that there was only ever one Lotus Cortina, and the other cars were called Cortina Lotuses on the basis that the original cars, the Mark I Cortina, when they um, got Colin Chapman to design and build it, or do it, that's exactly the point. The Dagenham supplied Lotus with the Cortina car, and they were built at Lotus, so the twin cam bed and all the bits that went on it were there, whereas the, the Mark II Ford Cortina, Lotus, Lotus supplied the parts to Dagenham, and the cars were built alongside the, on a production line. Oh, right. Chapman was so adamant that when these cars were returned, they were they were delivered, can you believe at the time, not on transporters, they were driven to the Ford dealership to be sold, yeah? Lotus Cortinas, yeah? Wow. So Chapman had the exact amount of fuel down to the last CC measured to drive the car at no more than 50 miles an hour. And if the delivery driver, it ran out of fuel, you were sacked. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, you wouldn't you wouldn't get away with that these days, would you? What? No, I've got rights. Yes. <laughs> I mean, Jim, he there there were some amazing cars that he produced, weren't there? Well, and it, ground effects were were yeah. the, you know, I mean, uh, just just that alone. But uh, the the as I said, the Lotus Forty Nine, um, that car was was uh, ground baking. Uh, yep. in, a, in a lot of ways, even though yep. uh, it took some of the things from the 43, but that car with the DFV, um, the, uh, he, the, the, the double body car, the, the Essex, um, yes. uh, that yeah. car was, 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 was that? yeah, yeah. And that thing was just, uh, that was an amazing piece of kit. I saw that at Long Beach and uh, uh, it, it of course ran afoul of the, of the rules and, and was was deemed illegal, but um, yeah, I mean, if you took Colin Chapman and Gordon Murray and put them together, and I'm sure the Twitter sphere will tell me I'm full of baloney because there are probably lots of other people that did great things, and I know there are. But if you took those two and put them together, what else is there? I mean, you had the fan car, you had. I mean, it's just yeah. if you took yeah. those, you would talk about genius. 
take those two and you got the Beatles and the Rolling Stones. What more do you need, babe? <laughs> well, that's, I'd say it's, it's a great book. It, it's, it is technical. Um, and if you want the, the trackside stories, if you want the, and then we went to Monza type stories, they're not in it. But if you enjoy the, the technicality of building race cars, then it's, it's absolutely there. And yeah, I thoroughly recommend it. It's, um, it's available now from Evro Publishing, and you can get that from evropublishing.com, and it'll cost you 50 quid, and it's 50 quid well spent if, uh, if that's what you would like to do. Right, so now comes the, uh, the difficult bit, which is about the, the choice of the worst single-seater racing car of all time. And... I've looked at it, um, the Mackay, the 312 T5, and the Techno are the three that are going forward for judging. They're all dreadful. <laughs> they're all... <laughs> In their own right. Yes. Which is the purpose of the exercise. That's okay. <laughs> <laughs> they, they all have a place in that... Uh, in that that dreadful part of the corridors of power, which is all about dreadful cars. But... Um, I think that if I look at the three of them, there's one car there which was so bad that it, and so unsafe that it actually ended the Grand Prix career of its driver. And that therefore, I'm afraid for that reason, along with several others, It's the Mackay that is going to win. So well done, Peter Snowden. Wow, let's hear it for the guest. Yes, let's hear it for the guest. Well done. Very kind of I'm not sure, I'm not sure um, winning the worst Formula One car ever <laughs> is such an accolade. But, um, yeah, it won't be on the headstone, will it, that one? Well, you, you, you can put it on your on your CV, on your resume. Yeah, absolutely, you? yeah. Yeah, winner of Corridors of Power, worst F1 car Kick ever. roller and Jerd's ass in a trivia contest. Yeah! <laughs> yeah. yeah. We, we won't so. forget. I, I That's think right. Oh, That's right. Was quite we don't get mad. We get yeah. even, pal. Well, <laughs> come in our house. Jim was gracious. That was quite menacing, Mr. Jerd. I heard that tone. Jim and I have been unleashed. Yeah, you could tell I'm kidding, but that that's a whole different podcast, Mr. Jerd. You know what? One of the one of the things is that that Snowy and I have been been trying to get him on the show for for some time, and now I understand why. Yeah, absolutely. And but I think from from this point on, when I say actually we could get you on on such a show. Peter's going to say, uh, no, thanks. I'm washing my hair that day. <laughs> <laughs> not, not at all. Quite absolutely the opposite. I've, I've, I've really enjoyed it. Um, I don't Bradley want to be better be careful. At the expense of Joe, of course, good friend, but, um, uh, it's, it's great to be here and I've, I've really enjoyed the company. It's, it's, it's fascinating. It's, uh, it's like being down the pub, isn't it? And just us, us chatting away. And that's, that's the best bit. It's brilliant. Thank you. Thank, thank you for having me. No, th- thanks for thanks for being here. Thanks as always to Jim and Paul. Uh, that... do, I get, do I get the rookie cup then? Yeah, you do. Oh, you yeah, get the rookie cup. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it's in the post. Yeah, and yeah, the rookie, oh, okay, and the rookie okay. saucer. <laughs> <laughs> that was brutal, Mister Jared. <laughs> I'm wounded. Um, so th- thank you, all three of you. Um, a very special thanks to Perry McCarthy for joining us this time round and. Uh, 
do go and get that audio book because it's it's great. And if you don't want to do that, the print version of Flat Out Flat Broke is still available. You can get it from Amazon. You can get it from various different places. And perhaps Paul Jerd's second-hand bookshop might even have a copy one day or another. <laughs> um, the, the service I I've get there, one. he'll read it to me. Have you? Good. <laughs> yes, they yes, would. Um, you, you've got it, have you, Jim? I sure do. Yeah, it's good. Good read. Uh, I think it might even be autographed. I'll have to go look. Well, yes. Oh, wait, it's packed away because we're moving. Of course, of course. Um, we'll be back in two weeks' time for our Historic Racing News Insider Special when we'll be looking at the year 1982 with all the joy and the intrigue and dun, the dun, horror dun. That, uh, that that had because it, it was a momentous, momentous year. And for that, we'll have our guests... Um, John Watson and Andrew Marriott will be sharing their memories of 1982. But did, until then... Did either of them have anything to do with that season? I'm sorry? Did either of them have anything to do with that season? Uh, <laughs> quite, quite a lot, yes. Yeah. Asking for a friend. Just a, just a tish. <laughs> but uh, thank you all, gentlemen. That's been great. Um, until then, my name is still Paul Tarsi and... As always, if you have been, thanks for listening. <laughs>